Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where you'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business-to-business meeting system. Also, make sure to donate to Extra Life. We've got a link down below in the description, or you can even join the Indie Game Business Extra Life team. That link is down in the description as well. Here we go, Indie Game Business. Hello, everyone. This is the Game Writing AUA. Ask us anything. We are so glad to have you here today. This is a crowdsourced panel. Uh, so if you've got questions, please go ahead and send them in. I would like to get started by having everybody introduce themselves and let everyone know how they got into game writing. Who's first? Okay, I'll, I'll go first. So, um, hi, my name is Michelle Clough. I'm a, a narrative designer with uh, Tail Spinners, which is a game writing co-op and outsourcing studio that does uh, story services. And uh, I got into game writing, I want to say about uh, seven or eight years ago. Um, first uh, was misdirected by a bunch of people being telling me you can only be in games if you're a programmer and i didn't want to be a programmer so i went off did other things worked in anime for a while um and then somehow stumbled back into it um and uh, I started off doing very kind of small indie projects, evenings and weekends, uh, while I did a full-time job. Um, so I got a few freelance uh, credits that way. Uh, two years ago, I finally uh, started doing it full-time, started off completely freelance, but uh, then ended up uh, falling in with the awesome people at Tailspinners. So uh, it's been really fantastic since then. and. Uh, I owe a lot of it to going to game conferences and meeting amazing people like Toya and uh, Heidi and a lot of the other people uh, that you may see around the internet. Um, they gave me a lot of uh, feedback and a lot of advice on how to get into the game industry. And uh, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. So they're awesome. Yay. <laughs> right, I think uh, Maurice is next. Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Maurice Broadus. I am a science fiction and fantasy author. Um, and that was actually my uh, entry into gaming. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I had a track record as a, as a storyteller and, uh, and and had obviously produced a series of stories. So, you know, that was pretty much my portfolio that I, I, I carried around with me. And, uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, well, you know, you know write, uh, novelists want to be game writers, game writers want to be novelists, you know, there, there's always that dynamic in play. And uh, I really, really, really wanted to be, uh, to do some freelance work in, in gaming. And so, uh, so um, same thing, uh, Gen Con is actually held here in my hometown. And, uh, and so it was just a matter of me go keep going to Gen Con, start to meet people, start to have conversations, start to meet editors and, uh, and game designers to see what, what sort of jobs were available and where, where could I possibly you know, squeeze in, even though I didn't have a background in, in game writing. And it, it started off with small assignments 
um, with uh, different RPGs. I, I wrote a lot for the uh, Margaret Weiss uh, uh, games. Uh, um, so I start off there. Then the next thing you know, I'm, uh, I start, start building that portfolio, um, including uh, being a consultant over to, for Watch Dogs 2. And then, uh, let's see. And then, and then, kind of bring it full circle to write uh, tie-in fiction uh, for software games too. So, yeah, my route has been building up my resume through uh, through my writing career, uh, well, my uh, fiction fiction career, and then uh, letting it translate over into the game writing spheres. And I think Andy's next. And actually, Strix makes a really great point. Could everybody please introduce with their pronouns as well? Oh, right. Yes. Sorry, mine are she, her. He, him. Andy? Oh, hello. Um, uh, I'm Andy Walsh. I'm a he, him. Uh, I uh, got into games through um, switching dimensions. I dropped into a dimensional portal, and here I am. Uh, at least it feels like that. Um, I, I started out scribbling in theatre and then ended up working in uh, soap operas and television for a while, um, discovered the, um, the wonderful world of, of writing in games by... Um, playing games and then um, getting drunk at a cricket match. Uh, uh, England just lost to Ireland today. I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm still suffering the the the, uh, the grief of that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I've been scribbling for quite a few years now. I've worked on sort of about 85 different titles um, from mobile phone games through to AAA um, on everything uh, from designing and consulting through to voice directing, motion capture directing, uh, and and uh, writing. So uh, most recently worked on uh, titles like Watchdog Legions and Division 2, um, and currently working uh, as a senior writer for Gorilla. Um, yeah. And Strix? Hi. Uh, first of all, I just want to say hello to everybody in chat, Kitty and David and Peter. Uh, we see all of you folks, so please continue to ask questions and carry on. We are paying attention. Uh, so my name is Whitney Batran. I go by Strix, uh, single name, kind of like Madonna. Pretty cool. Uh, and my story of getting into games is pretty convoluted. It involves an environmental policy degree, um, whacking around the jungles of Ecuador, getting a master's in mythology, and <laughs> a lot of a lot of stuff. Uh, my generation and an earlier uh, did not have game degrees at universities, so all of us ended up here through kind of surreptitious routes. Um, I was working in tech startup before I moved to games full-time, and I was writing on the side, uh, mostly for tabletop RPGs, a uh, common theme here, and I wrote my own game called Bluebeard's Bride. It's a feminine horror game, and it won a bunch of awards, and I was able to leverage that to break into full-time game writing on the digital side. Um, so I worked on State of Decay 2, uh, and then I went on to be the narrative lead for Beyond Blue, which just came out. Um, uh, Raccoon Lagoon, uh, which is a VR game. Uh, Hollow Vista, which is about to drop in September. I'm really excited about that. And then currently I am the project narrative director at Hidden Path Entertainment. And we are working on a really big, uh, really secret title that I can tell you nothing about, of course, for the next several years, so. <laughs> Uh, before I introduce myself, I would like one more panelist, uh, Heidi McDonald, who is currently in her car because she's living through a hurricane. Um, so if she is able to join us, and hopefully she will, she will be popping uh, into the discussion as well. I am Toya Kristen Finley. I'm also she, her. Um, I got into games 12 years ago because I wanted to make my own games. 
And at that point in time, I thought that game writers were more like game designers because game writers wrote how to play the game. Um, and I don't know if you can exactly duplicate what I did uh, back then, but I did a Google search for game writing jobs and I found something on Craigslist. <laughs> and there was an indie startup, they were looking for writers. And so I sent in a test, they liked what I was doing. So I became a lore writer. That's when I discovered that there were actually things called lore writers. Um, I worked for them for a while, they really liked my work and then they made me an assistant designer. And that's when I discovered that game design was a thing. So I basically entered the industry knowing nothing whatsoever about the industry. And so 12 years later, I've written two books. I co-authored the game Narrative Toolbox, and I also edited and contributed to a book called um, Narrative Tactics for Mobile and Social Games Pocket Size Storytelling. Um, I'm a game designer, narrative designer, game writer, editor, and also diversity consultant. And I've worked on everything from AAA to now um, being a senior editor for an app called Sauna Interactive Stories. And with that, um, I will ask the first question. And again, as Strix was saying, uh, feel free to uh, type your questions into the chat. We will see them. Um, I have been trying to find exact descriptions related to Gothic architecture for a horror genre game, but it keeps ending up at a basic overview such as these famous Gothic houses are X dimensions, X number of floors, so and so. Um, what you personally see uh, not being an artist. So needing a union of layman's terms and horror biased understanding of architecture of what is instead of requiring an encyclopedia to figure it out or unrelated statistics. Um, how do you write that up like a narrative designer or writer so that you can imagine it clearly? So uh, I'm gonna suggest something kind of like a encyclopedia. <laughs> um, so there's this book called A Pattern Language um, and it's widely available and it is uh, very useful for non-architects and it lays out in layman terms the pattern language like what things are called in terms of architecture from all around the world from different cultures um, so if you're looking for like a literary way to articulate that it gives you the words um, if you are looking to make art briefs that's very different and you will want to have the technical language, but mostly that's a matter of talking directly to the people you're giving art briefs to and, and making sure that you're communicating what you need. So without more like information on that question, unfortunately, I, I, like, I don't know which way to point you down those, those two paths, but definitely a pattern language is something that I have in my library as a writer and narrative designer. And I would recommend that other folks use uh, for architecture stuff. Um, Andy? Um, uh, I'm in awe of everyone's titles now and all the work they've done. It's great creative stuff, isn't it? Um, uh, and then the different skills that different people have. I mean, like Maurice was talking about all the novels he's written and, and novelists completely confuse me because I'm not very good at describing chair legs and things like that and making it interesting. And that's partly one of the challenges that we have of writers is knowing where, where our writing fits and what style of writing we're doing. Um, so one of the questions I would ask is, um, why you're why you're looking into those descriptions because it's very easy to get caught up in those details so it could be really relevant for you and if you're doing a text-based thing and describing all of those things and setting the world it can be incredibly um important 
if you're working with artists, then um, it's partly their job to take the description Gothic and then use their expertise to expand on the world. So don't don't try necessarily take their skill base away from them. Go to them and, and, and get them to, to work their magic on things uh, and allow them the space to create. And, and as a writer, I think the key thing is to ask what the emotional context is. So why are you describing those things and what is it that you want from it? Because the emotional area is something which whichever area of, of, of writing you're in is is central to, to it. So think about the emotional experience before you get into some of those details necessarily. So I know that's a slightly off uh, angle answer to what you're saying, but hopefully that's helpful. Uh, Michelle and then Maurice. Um, so uh, sort of bouncing off what uh, Andy was saying, I think uh, another thing to consider is that uh, like definitely consider you know, using visual aids and using images. I think it could be very uh, sort of tempting as we're all sort of writers that, you know, um, at heart to sort of feel like well, this is something we have to describe with words. It's something we have to like, you know, get document in words. Um, but some of the most useful documents I've worked with or created have just been kind of like almost like mood boards on Pinterest where it's just like, okay, I have a general idea of what I want this area or this, or this building or this, um, uh, or this city to look like. Here's a bunch of images to give you a, to give the artist a sense of where I'm going with that and what that mood is. And ideally, you know, if the lines of communication are open between you and the art team, um, then if they're not certain about something, they can come back and be like, "When you say sconces, do you actually mean sconces, or do you mean this other thing?" <laughs> Yeah, actually, when I, when I was hearing the question, it reminded me basically of literally my writing process. Uh, and so when I, you know, world building is always my favorite part of, of writing, no matter where I'm doing that writing. And so, uh, and maybe it's that my DM background, I I get, I love getting lost in the weeds of all those details. Um, and so, and, I, and so I'll take that time to do the research and go through, you know, I will haunt Google and, and, and look up everything I need to look up and create a, that out in my first draft. However, that's the key. It almost always just ends up in my first draft because uh, as, I, as I go through to do the second draft, when I'm actually concentrating on the story, the, the question then becomes, do I need all these details? Are these details actually slowing down my story and, and slowing down my narrative? How much of this do I actually need in order to uh, create the ambiance of, of what I'm trying to go for? And so there's that, that delicate ba uh, balance, balancing act that, that goes on between wanting to get all the details right to set the mood versus you know, what's getting in the way of telling the actual story. Can everyone stop saying sconces? Because I'm just hearing scones and it's making me really hungry. <laughs> well, let's go with our uh, first chat question uh, from Molly. Hello, all. Do you have advice for how to test how success successful you are in achieving an intended experience through your writing, specifically metaphor and comedy? Yes. <laughs> There are many ways. Um, so, uh, you know, two of the immediate tools that I think of uh, are table reads. Uh, so actually reading out loud with your uh, the other creatives that you're making the game with is super important. Um, two is actual audience testing, where if you have the resources, you take it to an audience and you see how they react. Um, and then three is internal play testing. Um, and with internal play testing, you just have your team actually sit down and experience the writing or the dialogue, and then uh, fill up questionnaires about 
what they liked and what they didn't like. And the key is that you want a bunch of people saying a bunch of different things that cancel each other out. Uh, <laughs> because if everybody's saying the same thing, then that's probably something you really should change. But if one person's like, I really like that character, and the other person's like, I really don't like that character, then probably you're doing that okay. Uh, I'll uh, I'll jump onto uh, that and also say uh, on top of the uh, table reads and and sort of internal testing like within the team uh, if you have uh, like a lot of writers I think have other writer friends that they can speak to and that they can reach out either under NDA or friendDA or maybe you know as part of the same co-op or company um, and I I often find that those sort of um, reads and reactions could be, you know, not not the only ones that are helpful, but really helpful, particularly when you've got a little bit of um, imposter syndrome going in the background because you're sort of like, is it really good or are they just saying that because they like me? And then when you show it to a writer, there's that element of, okay, this, this writer would tell me if this was bad and they're telling me that's really good and that they enjoy it. I'll pretend to believe them and go right ahead. Um, uh, also, the question is somewhat making me re uh, remember, I, I don't know who tweeted it, but it was something along the lines of like, you know, uh, you know, I know that my writing is good when I've made someone cry. Like that, that seems to be a certain subset of writer that's just like, I want to hurt my audience and I want to drink their tears. So um, if you've got a friend who can do that for you, that could basically like call you up and be like, oh, you, you, you know, your emotional scene made me weep into my beer, then uh, then absolutely call on that. Um, don't just call on that. There's as, as Strick says, like have that wider um, uh, sort of group of people to call on. But um, I think something like that is very helpful. I think, remember, remember the first audience is you. Um, so um, I definitely know when I feel like I'm crowbarring something in, it's like, oh, but I like that joke. Oh, that metaphor is really fun. But no, it doesn't quite fit the scene. Um, and you can feel sometimes the resistance as you're building the scene round and that's, that's where the murdering your your darlings comes from. It's 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 that bit where it's like, well, I I liked that bit and I and and it worked, but it doesn't quite fit here. Um, so trying to to be honest with yourself in those moments. Um, have you put in a line that you like? Um, great, but does it really fit the moment and does it really fit the scene? Because if if the aim of that moment is to get the player in and out really quickly, and the, and those elements are getting in the way probably best to cut them out uh even though it's gonna hurt you and maybe you could use it somewhere else but um yeah listen to yourself as the first audience as well so uh apparently andy's decided to directly attack me uh as i'm literally wrestling with that in my current draft of a story i'm working on because i'm determined to get this one joke to work no matter what but uh all right fine so there's that um and for me, uh, it's kind of, kind of going along with what folks have said. It's been, uh, you know, I have a, a group of uh, beta readers who um, I'll, I'll hand stuff off to and have them mark it up. And uh, and they're readers who I've, I've come to trust over time. So, uh, you know, so I know their strengths and weaknesses as, as readers also, which is, is key, because sometimes it's a, it becomes trouble if there's too many chefs in the kitchen. It's like, all right, so how do I wait, you know, uh, their reactions? Um, so it's good that, uh, you know, if you have some readers that you have long-term relationships with, then uh, you can uh, really use them as, as, as solid sounding boards. So, but yeah, a, a small group of readers has been uh, just key for me. 
So before we go to the next question, um, you can send us questions, whatever platform you are watching us on. Uh, go ahead, type in your question, and we will get it through chat. So our next question is from Rich, and I know nobody will want to answer this. Um, how could classic board and card games benefit from game writing outside of getting the game rules into better shape? Oh, um, <laughs> um, I've got I've got, I've got a collection of about 150 board games. I love board games, um, and the quality of writing is extremely variable. So, um, yeah, my goodness, a lot of games could could benefit from games writing um, uh, and a little bit of love and attention and some editing. Um, because a lot of the time it seems like they've been crowbarred in, and that's and that's not an, uh, in many cases it's because there's so little pay in a lot of uh, classic board game in board games and tabletop. Um, so it's it's a very difficult balance trying to get the right the right elements in there with the, with the pay that's being offered. So I I, I think um, world setting can I mean the, the, a lot of game designs that are, are out there are are recycled classic uh, card games. But the skinning of them is what sells it. I mean, resistance works because of the artwork and the choice of the world. Um, but you you add a little bit of a, of a world outside outside and around that, then it then suddenly you, that that game becomes an entirely different uh, experience than than a lot of party games that have been around there. So um, I think one one thing that that would carry through really from video games, which um, is a little can mean a lot. And resistance is a good example of that, where you do not need to go off and give all of the world background and and uh, um, uh, uh, it would be you know there's, there's areas you can explore outside of there if you want to, but for the game you don't need um, a huge amount. You just need that little bit of world setting and flavour to really make it work. So don't necessarily think you need tons. Um, look at, at, at some of the uh, games like um, Slay the Spire and how and how they do a, um, a lot with a little on on there to build up the atmosphere. Um, there's elements that we can talk about with, with some of those procedurally generated games, but I think taking some of those elements where world little touches present a world uh, can make a big difference to, to dress up a world, let's um, dress up a, a design set and make it feel more engaging. So I love games, so I just well, I just launched into that one and I'll shut up now. Uh, I have something to add. Um, so that I agree with all of that. Um, but also games writing is not just describing things. Um, Games writing is, you can't get away from narrative design. You just, you have to intrinsically at some point understand it. And for board games in particular that have stories, I'm gonna talk about those. Um, games writing is involved with the actual design of the mechanics themselves. The writing should inform the mechanics, the mechanics should inform the writing and they should build the world together. You can build a really lean game with a lean amount of words that do a lot of work if you make sure that you're incorporating them into the actual design of the game. Um, so uh, an example of that, I'll just take from my own tabletop RPG, Bluebeard's Bride, is you know there's only like two sentences that tell you uh, who your character is, but then the mechanic is someone else has to describe your relationship with them. So the, the narrative is driving you towards a couple things. One, making connections to the other players and two, creating backstory. And I didn't write like an entire character sheet for you to fill out. I said, we're gonna do this relationally. So what is the relational mechanic that I can apply with my writing? So that, that's what I mean by making sure that those two are fused together. 
Anybody else want to add to that question? Okay, and now my dogs have decided to start barking as I'm going to into the next question. Um, so this one is uh, specifically for Strix, but if anybody else has similar experience, please jump in. So Strix, so cool that you wrote your own game with little experience. How did you go about taking it from the story to a playable game? Did you do everything yourself or work with a team? Gotcha. Um, so first I want to caveat by saying I had a lot of experience with games by the time that I wrote my first one uh, starting in 2014. I had LARPed religiously for years. I would played tabletop for years. I had run a LARP organization and I had been playing video games but not uh, designing them for a while. And I have been a creative writer for a long time. So I've been, you know, interrogating structure. Uh, so it's not like I just rolled up and had a good idea and went bleh. Um, what was key for me was uh, my two other co-designers, uh, Sarah and uh, Marissa, um, there, we, each of the three of us had different skill sets. Mine was very um, structural, structural psychology, um, Jungian depth psychology, uh, archetypal and mythological expertise. Um, Sarah was uh, really good at um, uh, descriptions and um, like getting really icky because it's a horror game. Uh, and then Marissa was really good at like out of the box mechanics and getting us to experiment with those. Uh, and so, you know, it was absolutely a team effort. I much, much prefer to make games with other people than to be a solo designer. I just think I, you know, the, the power of the brain is exponentialized when you have more than one person working on it and you're less likely to fall into holes. Um, that being said, you know, the game came out of a game jam. If you've ever heard me talk before about getting into games writing, the thing that I always say is do game jams because the only way that you learn is by actually just doing it, like not studying, not practicing, so making a really messy, awful game if you need to. Um, but Bluebeard's Bride was not messy or awful. It turned out really well but it's because I was just doing um, and you learn along the way. So that would be, you know, my suggestion to you if you're thinking about, well, how, what is my path? How do I do this? I would say go to itch.io or go to the Global Game Jam website and sign up and, and do a game jam and don't be afraid of what happens. Anyone else want to jump in on that on doing your own project or? Well, sort of just to jump in on the on the sort of uh, the bit about the game jam. Also, uh, don't be afraid if you fail your first or indeed even your second game jam because um, I I've done two uh, game jams and to be honest, I I didn't complete either of them over scoping. Um, and uh, yeah, the first time it happened, it kind of like shook my confidence a little bit. But um, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a learn by doing process and uh like absolutely i'm i'm really glad i did it and uh strix is right that you know you just have, kind of have to put yourself out there um and just tell yourself that like hey even if i fail i will uh, get something useful out of this okay so the uh, next question is from david when applying to narrative designer jobs what's the best way to submit a portfolio that recruiters will actually read have your own paid website dropbox link just email the files etc Andy. 
Um, the joyous answer that comes with the games industry. Uh, there is no one answer to any of this, and they change the rules on you all the time. Um, so uh, I think the key thing with, it, with, it, with each of these things is being flexible um, uh, and making sure that you read the advert, because having been on the other end where I've been getting people that have been applying for jobs, um, uh, there are too few people that actually read the advert you put out. Um, so if it says send in, you know, uh, three samples of, of no more than three pages, or if it says send in a twine um, uh, game and you send in a twine game to the one that says send three samples of three pages and you send the you know, and vice versa, the, the likelihood is that it will just go plop into the reject pile before you get any further. So start off by reading the instructions that are, that are sent out um, and, and knowing that there's no one, fits, one size fits all. So whatever your route that you follow in, if you can make it to a game jam, that's great. Some people don't you know, don't necessarily get the chemistry there or they can't get to one. That doesn't exclude you from the industry. You can make games on your own or you can write and not make games. Um, you know, you can get in as, as a writer. You, you can find your own route. So all of these pieces of advice come with piece of advice come with a caveat that there is no no one central route. It's all really good advice, but there's no one set route. Find your own. Um, so for that, the key is finding the, the pieces that represent your best work. Preferably finding ones that represent games work because um, you will be able to, to to get in from other routes. But but games work is is handy. If if you haven't got games work, trying to find work that's relevant to the type of company you're applying for. So if you're applying for Fall in London, prose writing is probably more of a use than the than the screenwriting sample that you've got. And if you're applying to somewhere that that does uh, cutscenes and so forth, the opposite is the case. Um, it is worth writing barks because a lot of games writing jobs, particularly in and in AAA, if you're looking for those elements, or or AA will will be asking for barks and level dialogue. So it's it's worth shooting a, a wide with your portfolio if that works for your writing style. If you if you only want to write horror text text games, then only write that and and go and make that the thing that you follow. Um, so um, I would say a wide portfolio gives you a wider chance, unless you are really focused on wanting to work on one thing, in which case follow your passion. Um, but the key thing for knowing what portfolio works, they all work. So if you have the time to invest in having those things online and so forth, that can be useful. Um, but generally, um, if you're applying to places, you want something which you will send to them rather than asking them to come to you. Um, and then follow the instructions that are, that are given for each of those opportunities. So don't worry about it right now, uh, apart from looking to play around and create as much as you can so that you've got it ready for the point when opportunity comes calling. You have got to check out our Discord at discord.gg slash business. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck, finding a publisher and more. Remember, it's discord.gg slash indie game business.
Help helps if I unmute. Um, yeah, just just sort of basically, um, I, I found what was really helpful to me, um, you know, reasonably early on was uh, having a website which had sort of a repository of, um, you know, my best samples and my favorite samples. And then, um, as as Andy very well says, like looking at the each um, job posting and see what they want, because quite a lot of the time they will be like, you know, attach three pages, no more than three pages to the, you know, cover letter uh, or whatever. So I would always follow those to the, um, uh, to the letter. But having my portfolio online meant that if I needed to, I could put in a little line that said, please see the attached three pages. If you want more samples, please, you know, here's my link here. Um, so, and I don't know whether those people ever like looked at that link, they didn't have to, but it sort of meant that if they wanted to see um, a broader range of my samples, it was there for them to pursue if they were interested. So, um, and uh, let's just wait, I don't think anybody complained about it. So I don't think, I don't. nobody came back and was like, you weren't listening to the rules, you had an extra link in there. Chuck. Um, but uh, so yeah, that would be that's that's one benefit of having an online portfolio that on top of the um, the more specific applications and attachments, you have something that you can direct um, the, the the reader to go to if they want to find out more of your work. Andy mentioned um, following the guidelines of the ad. I'll just note that sometimes you don't have enough information to even understand what genre of game <laughs> you're applying for. And when that happens, I would just say in your cover letter, um, here are some samples, pick like, you know, your best stuff, right? And just say, here's a sample character bio, here's a sample cutscene, blah, 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 and say, ask ask specifically, you know, what is the game genre? What tone are you going for? And say that I can send you um, uh, more appropriate samples when I know, you know, the game genre and, and what you're looking for. So sometimes, you know, when you don't have enough information, put enough information in your letter and enough questions in your letter that somebody will more likely respond to you by responding to your questions. Okay, so the next question is, um, addressed to me, but I think that uh, several of us might want to chime in on this. So this is from Emma, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. Toya, as a diversity consultant, is the industry making progress in hiring and creating for people of all backgrounds? What opportunities have come for underrepresented groups in the industry? Um, so I would say it's a an extremely mixed bag. Uh, have we made some strides? Yes, absolutely we have. Uh, we still have a long, long way to go um, when you are dealing with systematic oppression in all society. That's going to be, um, you know, in jobs, in the way um, development hiring practices work. I think what's extremely important is for marginalized people to be known as experts in things besides being marginalized people. Um, I, I think several of us can attest to being asked to being on panels because we represent um, a marginalized group. And I think, you know, if you are a game designer, um, if you are an artist, if you are a programmer, 
what's happening right now is that there are so many opportunities to be seen and heard online in conferences that are free. Um, and I think something that can help right now is to look for conferences. Maybe you feel kind of shy being in front of people. Um, submit a talk and then you don't have to be on screen. You can put your slides on screen. Um, and I think being out there as a marginalized person, as an expert, is going to give you more opportunities because you're going to be known um, for knowing how to do things and doing things in a way that maybe people have not heard before. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, if you are looking for work yourself, let people know, hey, I'm looking for work. Um, could you please refer me to jobs if you know of them? Um, by the same token, if you have friends and you see jobs that are open, refer them. Um, the more that we help each other, the more that we're going to help each other get ahead. Um, so the long and short of it is things are getting better, I think, especially in this present zeitgeist, um, you know, with everything that's happened in the United States over the past three months with um, focus on oppression and um, brutality, all of that, um, we have a window of opportunity. Um, and I think being more present and vocal helps that. Um, I don't know if anybody else wanted to jump in on that one. Uh, Maurice? Yeah, because uh, I, I pretty often get hired in as a, as a consultant on different gaming projects. and. One of the things I uh, end up telling my clients fairly often is, yeah, you probably should have brought me in sooner on this project rather than waiting till the last minute. Because at the beginning. There's some things, yeah, at the beginning, literally at the beginning, because I could have saved you even more headaches uh, and, and stirred you away from some of the pitfalls that there's, because uh, at some point I just can't do anything for you because you're either recording if it's a video game or you know, you're know you down the road, then it's like, oh, so you're kind of committed to ABC storyline. I can't help you at that point. But there's plenty, uh, plenty of areas I could help you, at, you know, can help you at. So uh, I guess long and short of it is, yeah, bring bring us in earlier rather than later. Or here's a shock: hire us from the beginning. You know, just hire more more people of color on your teams across the board. You know, save yourself all kinds of headache. Yeah. So I'm also a professional DNI consultant, and I do want to point out there is a difference between. Uh, being marginalized and being an expert on how to address that marginalization within corporate structures and companies. They're unfortunately not the same thing. Um, so maybe asking a random popular person on Twitter is not the best idea. Like, and I say that for like everybody's own good in that it causes a lot of problems. So don't be on either end of that spectrum. Um, in terms of your question, uh, progress in hiring. So the thing that I, I come up against again and again, because I, I help with hiring practices specifically, is these HR people saying, I can't find them. I can't find the people of color. I can't find the qualified people of color. Where are they? I've looked everywhere. So that's a frustrating scenario with a lot of things going on it. But what you can do with your own agency as a marginalized person is make yourself as visible as possible. Like paint yourself in neon, go to every indie meeting, be on every panel you can be on, like Toya said, like author papers, make games and post about them. Like what you need to do is network and not like, hey, here's my card, nice to know you, but form friendships, form relationships, support other people's work, uh, you know, let them support your work and just be as visible as possible. Because the issue is these people are looking, but if you're white and only you know other white people, then uh, the people you're looking to hire are actually outside your circle of influence and it makes it 
really challenging to find them. So, uh, you know, I see a lot of folks, especially at Black Lives Matters right now going, ooh, you know, we got fire under us, we need to change this. And we're like, yes, thank you. So a few years too late, but at least it's happening. And then they go, I can't find anybody. The other aspect of that is um, marginalized and especially black devs are at a serious disadvantage right now because they actually sometimes don't have the same number of years of experience developing as, as white developers. And so as a company, you have to be willing to put in the resources to get people in. Um, and that is something that a lot of companies don't realize or are not willing to embrace is like, you know, you have to decide what your goals are. Is your goal to get someone in who's really experienced that you don't have to teach cheaply? Or is your goal to hire people of color? Like they are sometimes at odds with each other. And so you need to be really clear on your mission statements and on what resources you have available because that's ultimately what's gonna prove hiring success uh, a lot of the time. Okay, I'll go to the next question now. We've got about 10 minutes left and I did want to, I'm, I am skipping some questions, I apologize, but I did want to get one to one that's more about um, hiring writers and narrative designers. Um, so I'm, I'm very, I, I, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce your name, um, so I'll ask the question. Um, so I'm looking to hire some freelance narrative designers. Where should I start? Also, how do you evaluate or vet narrative designers? And suddenly we all like go forward with our cards and be like, hi, hire us now. Um, I, I, this is an interesting question for me because like I, I sort of feel that a lot of the um, clients that Tailspinners get, um, I think, uh, based on their emails, may have just come to us like, you know, just by Googling, you know, like Googling for, you know, narrative, like game narrative or narrative design or narrative design studio. Um, so to a certain extent, um, you know, obviously Googling for, for uh, narrative designers is, um, uh, you know, is one way to find them. But uh, what we always sort of end up having to do, and I think it's very important, is to have that little bit of face-to-face uh, -face time early in the discussion process to find out, you know, if the, you know, if it's a match, because we'll often get that sort of initial kind of email of like, hey, we're, you know, looking for somebody to do narrative, and then we'll talk to them, um, find out more about the project, tell them more about what we do and how we work and often to be blunt, what our prices are, at which point, you know, sometimes it's like, man, you know, I really am looking forward to working with you. Let's, let's go on to the next, um, you know, the next stage. And other times it will be like, yeah, that's not in our budget. Or sometimes even on our end, we'll be like, this sounds like a really interesting project, but just not for us right now, or we're, or we're booked up. Um, you know, would you like to go and and like talk to these other like here's some other recommendations of other people you could uh, other other people you could talk to. So um, to a certain extent, I think that even just reaching out to narrative designers, even if the first person you talk to isn't the narrative designer you end up hiring, we're a close knit community, and and you know more often than not, they'll end a conversation with, I might not want this, but you should totally talk to so and so. Andy. 
you're, you're muted. I should, I should unmute at that point, shouldn't I? Rather than do the, uh, just like, ah, track to the, um, uh, unmute. So, uh, yeah, I think um, a place to start, if you have the the, the, the knowledge to do so, but uh, but even without the, the, the um, uh, sort of um, specific knowledge, is, is start with it with writing a description so that when you actually go out to to speak to to anyone you know what already in advance what you're wanting and that can be as simple as knowing what your budget is what how long you're going to need them um on post exactly you know what what the game is so you're hiring someone to do a procedurally generated game you're hiring someone to do a top-down tactical uh, uh shooter you're hiring someone to do a uh, a triple a um four-year project um, so all of those types of inf information are going to influence uh, the type of people that you should be approaching because their skill bases are going to vary and their knowledge and their interest is going to, to vary. Um, it's also going to tell you that the, the, the type of people to, to approach. You know, are you looking to, to hire um, someone who's senior and experienced within within the industry to, to lead a team? Are you looking for a, a group of junior narrative designers to do a lot of implementation work on, on things? So really sort of starting to interrogate what it is, what form you want the, 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 the job to take. Then you can take it out, and then if you go, if you come to, to somebody who's been in the industry for, for a while, or you go to somebody that uh, no, a group like Tailspinners, um, then uh, you will get feedback on that, so be open to that. Because um, I've been approached on, on a number of occasions with jobs the way you go. <laughs> um, um, yes, can you, we, we've got this really good job that we'd like you to tackle with it. She's a hundred thousand words, and we need it in two weeks. Uh, no, uh, no. Uh, no. Um, so, um, so being prepared to have a conversation about what is realistic um, once you've got those job descriptions in, in place. Um, but yeah, starting to know your budget and so forth. Um, as Strix mentioned that um, before, and as, as Michelle has alluded to, it's, 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 a, it's a close community. So you can find uh, a lot of people on social uh, networks um, uh, and uh, through them find other people or they will find um, people. Uh, the, these things tend to go out uh, out across the grapevine. There is, there is work. Um, uh, and so people will help um, each other find that work and try and make sure that it gets it gets out there. But go in knowing what you want, because the, the, the biggest car crashes happen when people start out by going, I don't know what my budget is. I don't know. And you can you know go look at all the job, job postings that are out there or go and speak to somebody about what the types of things are that you should be looking for. If you're not at a stage to, to be asking about that. I'm having that conversation at the moment with a with a, a group um, about know what is involved in all of those situations because it's the first time that they are, they're hiring somebody but do do a little bit of research on the, on those elements and come out with a brief and then build from there so i have been on the hiring end and i have looked for um i looked for artists for a client and this also comes from my background as being a writing instructor um but do they follow your directions? Like, do you have specific questions that you ask? Did they actually answer your questions? Did you ask for a link to their portfolio? They didn't give you a link. Um, that's a very quick way uh, to see if people are paying attention, um, if they're taking the time to really understand what you're looking for. Um, and also, if, if they're not going to pay those that attention to detail, when they're responding to you, there's a good chance they may not pay that attention to detail when they're working. Um, there is a direct correlation I have found to being able to follow directions and the level of work that you do. Um, 
The other thing is it's not necessarily just how talented the person is and how much you like their work. It's also how well do they work or will they work with you and your team? Because it is a collaborative relationship. Um, so once you get a good sense of, you know, people that you like, try to get into a conversation with them. You know, it's a little bit harder now, but if you can do like a Skype call or Discord or, you know, however you want to do a meeting, um, have them meet with you or your team and just talk about certain scenarios or situations, get a feel for them, um, you know, get a, ask your teammates, well, what did you think about them? Um, and, and, and get a feel for how they might work with you because that's extremely important. You don't wanna bring somebody in who for whatever reason just doesn't work well with the rest of the team. Uh, so the next question, uh, Andy brought up uh, procedural games. This is kind of an issue right now, how narrative works in procedural. Uh, so this is from Hitoshi. So what about games that use procedural generation and non-linear structures? like roguelikes, how can you build a narrative there? I just wrote a design brief on this. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the answer is it's how you structure the code uh, about how you generate what happens next. So uh, I'm not going to get into the technicalities, but basically um, when you build the the code structure and the syntax for your narrative system, you build it in such a way that it remembers what you did and then you give it rules for what to do next. Um, you don't say, then this line happens. You say, here's a rule. And then maybe because of that rule, you pull out of a bucket of texts or a bucket of barks or a bucket of things. And then that thing gets remembered and the rule builds on that case. That is the probably the simplest way to express that is you're not writing everything by hand and then hoping it goes okay. You are building structures um, that allow you to tell stories emergently. So a really simple example is actually from um, the handbook that, um, oh, uh, procedural narrative. Um, what is the name? Sorry, someone help me. Who edited it? It was Tanya Short, right? Yes, the book that Tanya Short wrote, uh, read it. It's fantastic, especially the last chapter because I'm pulling directly from there. So say that you have a character that every time they see a barrel, you want them to build on what they said last time about what they saw about the barrel. So it's object, see a barrel. Have you seen the barrel before zero times? Okay, I'm gonna say, look, there's the barrel. And then you say, okay, I've seen the object. I've checked how many times I've seen it. I've seen it five times. I'm gonna know, oh, I say, what's with all these barrels? Like. It's, I'm not funny right now, but basically you, <laughs> you, you want to make the system do the work for you through rule sets. Uh, so, so read the book because it's, it will help you figure that out. <laughs> Toy, I think you're muted. I was definitely muted. Okay. Uh, I was just wondering if we have time for one more. And this is kind of like a, a writing process question from Kitty. Um, whenever I'm working on my game story, I manage single events, but struggle finding a good overarching plot. Any recommendations on creating a big, exciting storyline to bring everything together? Uh, 
I almost kind of want to want to say, well, when you figure that out, please, please let us know. <laughs> it's it's um, I, I think because that is something that I think every writer uh, struggles with in different ways, because I think some people uh, have almost the other uh, the opposite issue of, um, you know, that they come up with a brilliant overarching plot and then they're like, great, fantastic. How do I actually do any of that? Um, to be honest, sometimes I find that just collaborating or, or sitting down with a writer that has that different process than me can help in that way. Like, I mean, again, you have to obviously work within NDA, but, um, you know, if I am a, you know, more of a, I've got a great plot, but no idea of like the events that go on and somebody else is, I know the events, but I can't really figure out how to string them together sit down like on Skype or Zoom or eventually for coffee and just maybe like hash things out with them. Like I find that it's really helpful to talk with fellow writers and bounce ideas off of each other. And with any luck at the end of it, you know, you'll both have ideas of where to go. Uh, Andy? Hand yeah. I'm still not learned, am I? I'm quite finally muted it. Right. Um, the, um, I think uh, domino them. I mean, uh, I think a lot of a lot of times people think that plots fall into your head fully complete. I wish um, there are points when you wake up in the morning and, and you 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 know where things are going, and there are stories that have dropped in people's heads. But generally, it, the coal face of of um, of writing is mining out all of those things and finding how how the story develops. So if you're finding those single events, that's that's a good starting point. Um, and then sit and brainstorm. I mean, I I was lucky that I ended up moving. I mean, I loved my my time in theatre, but it was incredibly valuable for me. Valuable for me when I went into the soap operas because I was in this, this the story rooms, basically just doing this all the time. And in soap operas, the stories can go on for a long time. So you're looking at building out those beats. Where does this domino into? If if I've got this event. What are the what are the things that can come out of it, and what are the most interesting elements of those to pursue? So this could happen, or this could happen. Which is the most interesting one I want to to, to follow, uh, given the type of story that I'm writing? So don't don't be afraid of those single events. And one of the things I quite often do when I'm when I'm plotting is to write down a set of single events, come up with some single events, and then I'll find how those begin to bridge together. Um, so. There are points when I'll have a beginning or an end, or no middle. Other points when I'll have that and I'll be searching for the end. But it, keep working through those single events and seeing seeing where they lead you. Um, and you know, we're, we're in a time where we're supposed to get all the answers in in one go. Books can take years to to write and so forth. Find your process and what works for you, and uh, enjoy the journey. Don't think it all has to happen in in, in one moment. Breeze. Yeah, um, and exactly all of that, because um, I know, like, I know my strength as a writer, for example, is as a world builder. And so I know whenever I'm building my world, I'm going to do, uh, when when in doubt, I always come back to what is the world that I've built? How has the world that I've built, how, because in world building, your world should be uh, the, an engine of conflict, if nothing else. And so, uh, you know, how does that world create obstacles for your characters and, and just to continue to, to build that out? So I was, so like when in doubt, I come back to the world. Uh, what is the world that I've built and how can that world get in the way of my characters? Uh, I have a lot to say about this, but I don't think we have time for that. So we'll keep it short. Uh, so, uh, you know, I usually uh, am 
participating in narrative-driven games, which means narrative-forward means I have some advantages over games where they're not narrative-forward. Um, for me, it boils down to understanding what the simple story is, and that means the core conflict that's going to drive everything that is basically unsolvable. It's just the, the thing that people are trying to rework over and over again. And it could be like a family trying to find safety in the world, right? That's Game of Thrones, right? Uh, so you have to think about what's gonna be the driving factor. And then the other thing that I would caution is uh, be wary of the three act structure and other structures for other medias that don't apply to video games. Video games are a modular storytelling medium. That means the stories that you tell will benefit from being modular. So think of it more like uh, a TV series over several seasons than a movie. And what that means is each season, you kind of know where you're beginning and where you're gonna end and what, what transformation needs to happen to those characters, what needs to be pushed forward. And then each episode is the modular bit that contains its own story that's satisfying that you can cut off and be like, cool, and then build on each other through that climax at the end of the season. So think of, Think of like longer narrative games, like seasons of, of television and, and not a movie. It, you'll do much better if you take the modular approach, in my personal opinion. People can just, feel free to disagree. I, it's not, it's not Bible. <laughs> uh, so uh, we are the last talk of the day. So if we would like to take a couple of more questions and everybody wants to do that, we can. Um, so Gary asks, uh, in online games where the narrative is driven by multiplayer engagements, should writers pursue the player's motives and build on that narrative despite limited knowledge around the player motive? Um, I think uh, that depends entirely on the type of game that you're making and what you mean by the, the motive. Um, we faced that problem when I looked at, I worked on Fable Legends, um, uh, mate, rest in peace. Um, and uh, we, we faced the, the question there of, a, of a, a game that had been famous for linear stories, even though there's open world elements, it was the strong sort of central story that, that drew people back. Um, uh, at each point, so you could go and, and explore around and uh, find the multiple endings, etc. But you were there for the, for the narrative journey. Um, and with the multiplayer version, uh, where you could play as any of four characters, any of those four characters could be played by AI or by uh, friends. Um, any of the, any um, a selection of heroes could be dropped into that into those those quests at any point. We were facing something which, had, although it had a linear arc narrative to it, it was much more about the player being able to explore and play around with the the toys that we gave gave them. Um, so there's there are various solutions to it one is to create relatively thin characters that the character that the player can build their own uh, project their own experiences and and the world upon um because they can explore the world and, and learn a lot through there rather than learning about the central characters that the protagonists that you've got there or you can you can give them uh, different toy sets and play sets to play with and that's what we did with fable was to build up a series of very clear uh, heroes that you could um experience and and spend that that time with and try and make it fun um, which is a, this is a thing which is done for has uh, been done with Left for Dead um, and and so forth and another another areas they 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 achieve both by having a, a narrative experience that's more about player um, uh, interaction during the game but if you want to build the world wider 
you go to the comics and the books and the online videos that exist uh, beyond that to try and try and look at it. So comparing, say, Team Fortress with with Left 4 Dead uh, and the way that they built the stories up. So um, the key thing in, in a lot of those elements is what the, the gameplay experience is going to be so that you don't get in the way. Um, and then finding the edges where you can you can blur in your narrative or, or world. And, and there's sometimes that choice between narrative, is it A to B narrative where you're building sequentially, or is it about um, just infusing everything with a sense of the world and the place that, that you're in, and then allowing the, the player to, to um, construct their own experience within it. Michelle? Um. So I, I haven't had a chance to work on like an MMO or, or similar multiplayer game, but one thing I would say um, is uh, it, it is absolutely possible to have multiplayer games that uh, delve into the into sort of the player's motives and the player character as, as a character. But I think at that point you have to really commit to it and you cannot uh, just apply you can't always apply the same narrative structure uh as you would for a single player game so my mate my go-to example for this is world of warcraft i adore world of warcraft i will be playing it you know when i die um but it is an issue with a lot of the narrative because firstly there's all this stuff about you are the chosen one who can only save the world and i'm like yeah me and like 50 million other people who are standing around in Algramar. um but you also have situations where there are narrative um, events that happen, for example, actions that your faction might take. And in order to progress the story, the only way to keep progressing the story is to be like, yes, sure, I will accept this quest line in which I commit war crimes, uh, you know, for the Horde. Um, and that, as a player, is very, like, uh, it's frustrating from an agency point of view and from a narrative point of view. So I feel that if you're going to, um, sort of give the like make the player more of a character in this world you have to take a step back and think about okay but what then will the player want to do as that character because they may not want to go along with this amazing linear as you say three-act structure that they're going for they might want to be like no screw you sylvanas i'm going to you know leave the horde and do something else um and that's and that's not saying you have to plan for that it's saying that you know basically either say that's what you're doing or if you're trying to give more agency then give your players more agency more narrative agency um i've got one last question and uh for people who are asking about rates um, you should find a link in the chat from the writers guild of great britain that talks about uh rates and what writers and narrative designers should be making. Um, so that's really, really helpful information. Um, we've talked a lot about getting referrals and we've discussed how we got to know people going to cons. We're in a pandemic, so a lot of the old ways of finding work uh, won't necessarily work anymore. Um, so I kind of wanted to leave everybody with, well, gee, how do we get to know people now? How do we network now? Um, a, a takeaway that everybody can use if they are now actively looking for writing or narrative design work. Michelle? Um, 
So I think, and this obviously may not work for everybody in terms of, uh, you know, their, their structure or where they are in their career, but um, what has been really helpful uh, on, on my end and on Tailspinner's end is trying to set things, like setting things up so that it is e not only that it's easy to find you, like basically that people come to you. Um, and I think part of what has really been helpful in that regard, and I, I spoke with it a little bit um, in an earlier session, uh, a talk with Toya, um, because I am in a co-op as opposed to a single freelancer, I have definitely noticed a, a difference, and I can absolutely talk, you know, more later in the wrap-up room about, you know, being a single freelancer versus being in a co-op. Um, but there has been, I, I, I don't want to quite say extra legitimacy in being in a group because obviously you can be a, a, a solo freelancer and be like the most amazing legit person on the face of the planet. But I, let's just say, I've gotten a lot more emails coming into our group email than ever came into my personal email. So I think, you know, that, that if you, like, that is something to consider if you know people like other narrative designers and other writers might be worth considering that as a as a way to sort of say not just i'm one writer i'm looking for work but more we're a group we are available to do you know storytelling services for you and it feels like people pay more attention at that point i may be wrong but that's just been my experience Andy? Uh, Maurice, you, you go first. Well, uh, this is just real quick. I mean, I, I still get a lot of mileage, frankly, out of just following uh, game designers and editors on Twitter, to be honest with you, because uh, uh, they're often posting about the, what they're looking for or what they need, and it's just a real easy uh, follow-up tool for me. So uh, I just keep it simple. Um, I, I think there have been some, some changes, but at the same time, um, a lot of stuff had, had, had gone online anyway, um, and it can sometimes be disconcerting or um, hostile to, to go to some of the the, um, the, the events in person. Um, I mean, the Writer Guild of Great Britain did organise a set of networking events that were that were in per, in person, which were were, were there to, to to allow people. But then you would have to get to London for those. So obviously, they they were open and inclusive if you could get to London and spare the time to be there. Um, so I think a lot more organizations are trying to do things online, like, hey, we're here. Um, uh, so I think a, a lot of the, the ways that you needed to get in already were, were online. It's, I think, learning the etiquette of doing that um, and, and making sure that you're following up and chatting to people in a, a positive and, uh, and uh, uh, a, a way that's not, um, yeah, I mean, don't sort of bounce in, into people on, online on, on social media as if they are your best friend and immediately start following up and harrying them and demanding that they read your things. Um, so, you know, following following online etiquette um, is, is really important. Um, but uh, going to all of those message boards, going to all of those websites where the jobs are, are being advertised was, was a really important thing even before the pandemic. And... Um, so I would take all of these things as, as practice um, to continue, um, even when things have changed and, and eased down, because those are um, contacting people on, online and social networks and so forth is, is going to stand you in a lot better stead um, in the long term than a lot of the ways that, that people were, were suggesting before. It's great to get out there and, and, and meet people in, in through those things, but um, uh, you'll, you'll probably have more success doing things online. 
Um, I do. I find Twitter's been really great for me. I've I've met a lot of people through there, which um, who I wouldn't been able to otherwise. You know, I've been playing out to conferences and, and meeting people, and but since been on Twitter, all of a sudden there's thousands of people you can meet and have conversations with and and find out about. So I mean, even with this panel, it people that I haven't met, it was like, hey, yeah, I know you from this, and I remember you talking about this online. It's great. So yeah, following following people on Twitter and and or Instagram, um, or other social networks are available. Um, uh, whatever works for you. Um, but, but follow the follow the guidelines of etiquette that that are on those on those sites. Yeah, please never never demand that I read your thing ever. I don't ever do it because you will be blacklisted forever. Just so you're clear, like don't do that, please. Um, so I'll reiterate what I said earlier about game jams. There are a lot of remote game jams. You can get to a lot of them through itch. Your best bet to landing jobs is collaborating with a lot of people so they know you, they know how to work with you. And when it's time for a position to open up, they go, hey, I know a person that could fit. That is much easier than knocking on the door and sliding your resume under the crack and never knowing if they even saw it. Uh, so it, the more that you can avoid like online gateways, like drop, drop your resume here with your stuff, and the more you can talk to people, the more successful you will be. And that comes down to building your soft skills, building your relational skills, building your interdisciplinary skills and forming relationships with people again. I know I keep harping on that. So online game jams, social media is a big one. Um, and then the last thing, what was I gonna say? Oh my goodness. Uh, produce work produce work that other people can find. Like, it doesn't matter if it's good. It doesn't matter if it only kind of works. Just like keep producing work and keep posting it online. Um, you know what's gonna make you a better narrative designer and writer is iteration. And iteration with other people is vastly superior than iteration with yourself alone in a room. That's a good way to have your career die on the vine. Uh, so um, building community is one of the best things that you can do for yourself. And luckily for us, we can do that really easily online. Aha, I remembered what I was gonna say. It came to me while I was stalling. Um, so local groups that have online presences, like a Facebook group or a Discord, something that is geographically tied to you so that you're, you know the other designers and the doers in your local community, because that's gonna help you score local jobs so that you do not have to move overseas or uh, not work remote if that's not what you wanna do in the future at some point when we are not working remote anymore. Um, Seattle, for instance, has a great uh, Facebook group for indie designers, many cities do. Uh, look for one, join it, participate. So this is coming from someone who hates social media because if I spent any real time on it, it would become an incredible time suck. Um, so I'm not great at social media by any means, but I think it's extremely important to be known as an expert in a few things. Um, so for example, somebody asks about, like in a Facebook group, um, how do I figure out what my rates should be? I can answer very quickly. Well, here's a, a couple of things that you could consider. Um, like in one Facebook group I'm in, there's somebody who always posts jobs. You know, so, you know, they're known as a very helpful person um, or, you know, like 
if if you have worked on um, particular game genres and somebody's asking a question um, about that genre, you can give your expertise and your experiences working in that genre. So when somebody's thinking, huh, I need to find a narrative designer for my procedural game, you think back and you know somebody who's always talking about working on procedural narrative. So Strix was saying earlier, be present. Um, be present and be known um, for a couple of things so that when somebody's thinking of um, work that they need done or maybe they know someone, um, an acquaintance who needs work done, you immediately come to mind. And, oh, Michelle? Just a quick follow-up to that and don't get too demoralized if you are trying to make yourself like push yourself forward as in one particular specialization and uh people take you up for another because like that was something that bugged me for the longest time i was doing all these talks about uh sex and games and and uh, romance and games and being like yes i'm going to you know position myself as one of the experts who could do that and i kept on pe getting people coming up at gdc's and be like wow i really liked your talk on sex and games would you like to do this third person sci-fi shooter that has absolutely nothing to do with any of these topics and initially that really got me down but i've now gotten to the point of like yeah but I got work. I've still like been able to, you know, impress people enough that they are willing to give me a shot and that I've really enjoyed working on these other projects. So uh, I, I definitely like, basically this is a long winded way of saying, you know, Toya's right, position yourself as a specialist, but also be, be sort of ready and prepared for the idea that they may, nobody may take you up on that particular specialization, but it may lead to other things anyway. And, you know, to, to be ready for those opportunities as well. And I think with that, we will close our AUA. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Um, I do believe there is a wrap-up room. So those of us who can stick around, we will be there. Um, I know for some of us, it's almost midnight. <laughs> and so I really appreciate you being here. Um, but thanks so uh, so much, everybody, for your questions. I do apologize that we could not get to all of them, but you had really great questions. Um, and I enjoyed it, and hopefully we can do something similar in the future. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business. Oh, my God.